Welcome to Jeremy's. My name's Steve. I'm the pastor of the church here. If you're visiting or you're here for the very first time, um, a very warm welcome to you. We are uh, in the middle of a series in the book of 2 Samuel, and uh, we have arrived at chapter 16. And uh, my intention is that we're going to work our way through uh, these verses together for the next 20 minutes or so. Before we do that, though, I want you to imagine that you're on the phone to a Christian family in Kiev. There are four of them there. They are huddled together in a cellar for shelter and for warmth. Uh, The Russian bombs are raining down, and as you listen on the phone, you can hear the explosions going off all around them. It's clear from the tone of their voices that they're in fear of their lives. They have no idea whether they will survive the next few hours or not, whether one of those bombs might hit them directly, and that will be it. So they're on the phone to you, and they're asking just for a bit of encouragement What are you going to say? What have you got to say? Something, anything for them to hope in, a truth for them to grasp onto you. What are you going to say to them? Well, you do know, don't you, that you cannot say, oh, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. You know you can't say that, don't you? It's a pathetic, wishful idea. It's no good at all. It's no comfort, is it? You have no idea whether it's true. They might die. Thousands of others have. Even saying... A more Christian, event, a Christian version which says, don't worry, God is sovereign. Or God's in charge. I mean, that's true, isn't it? But even that itself probably won't cut it for them. I mean, in those moments of chaos, though it be true that God is sovereign, it certainly will not feel like it, will it? You're going to need to say more than that. So what are you going to say? What are you going to say? In all honesty, I think it's an almost impossible question. I'm sure I would be uh, terribly lost for words or just mumble something that I later regret it. But what I want to show us this morning is that 2 Samuel 16 is not lost for words in that setting. God's word has something for us to say in those moments. As David is running in fear of his life, facing the loss of everything, there is in 2 Samuel 16 a, a truth that he is rehearsing that's bringing him great courage and comfort And I want to walk through these verses, and I want us to see that together. So let's have a look at uh, 2 Samuel 16, and then we'll return uh, to that uh, truth and that hope. Really, 2 Samuel 16 is arranged around uh, the encounters with three different characters, three individuals who in different ways turn on David and make his life more complicated and more dangerous. The first of those men is in verses 1 to 4, and it's Ziba, Ziba. Now, it might at first sound harsh to call Ziba a traitor. After all, he turns up with food and donkeys, supplies for the runaway David to eat along uh, the way with his men. But if you read it carefully, I I think you can see that uh, even David is a little suspicious, and the whole account is a little bit sus. So in verse 2, David asks him, why have you brought all this stuff to me, Ziba? And then in verse 3, David asks, why is Mephibosheth not with you? Now, in case you've forgotten, Ziba was a servant of King Saul. Mephibosheth was one of King Saul's descendants. And for the sake of a promise that David made to Jonathan, Saul's son, uh, he was showing kindness to the crippled son, Mephibosheth. And he appointed Ziba, who had been a servant of Saul, to look after Mephibosheth in uh, kind of uh, keeping this promise that David made. Now, that all happened several chapters ago. 
And Zibber has obviously been doing a really good job of farming Mephibosheth's land because he comes with all the produce to David. But not such a good job of looking after Mephibosheth himself, who he has left. Zibber claims that Mephibosheth has stayed back in Jerusalem with the hope of getting his kingdom back, which in verse 4 seems to satisfy David's inquiry, and he hands over all the inheritance to Zibber. But really, all of that is a show. Zibber is playing David. So notice there's no intention of Zibber's to go with David here. He stays where he is. And in chapter 19, which we'll come to in a few weeks, Mephibosheth tells David that actually Zibber tricked him and abandoned him in Jerusalem, which actually makes more sense, doesn't it? Why would Mephibosheth think that Absalom, David's son, getting the kingdom would mean that he would get the kingdom back when he's Saul's son? It's a weird thing anyway, isn't it? Anyway, you look at verse 4 and you see what Ziba's really interested in. Look at the end of verse 4. What does he say? And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favour or charm or popularity in your sight, my lord the king. And that's what Ziba wants, isn't it? Ziba is interested in Ziba. He's interested only in himself and he wants David's favour. In case David ends up returning as king, he's paying him off so that when or if he comes back to Jerusalem... Ziba finds favour with him. But he's not throwing his lot in with David, just in case, I think, Absalom wins. And he needs instead to find favour from Absalom. So that's the first one. The second one is in verses uh, 5 to 14, Shimei. He's introduced in verse 5 as a member of the house of Saul. He's a Benjamite. And he is sure that David's exile from Jerusalem is God paying David back for being a man of blood. Alison read it brilliantly, didn't she, in verse uh, 7. Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you're a man of blood. There's not much love there, is there? It's not just words, though, that Shimei is throwing. He's also lobbing stones and throwing dust. And Abishai wants to take off his head to shut him up. But David won't let him telling Abishai in verse 11 that given that his son Absalom is trying to kill him, that being called a few names and having a three pebbles thrown at them is the least of his worries, which, if you think about it, is probably a fair point. If you're on the run for your life, you're not that worried about getting dusty from a raving man on a hillside. The final traitor, then, is in verses 15 to 23. It's Ahithophel. Here the camera swings, doesn't it, from David on the run back into Jerusalem into Absalom's arrival. At first, though, before we meet Ahithophel, we meet Hushai, who, if you remember last week, was sent uh, by David back to Jerusalem as a spy to work behind the scenes. Seems that Hushai is an old man, not so good at running, but quite good at espionage. So that's why he's sent back. Now, knowing that makes it kind of funny as you read Hushai's encounter with Absalom, doesn't it? Uh, look at verse 16. Let me try and read it again and think how Hushai might be saying these words, right? Hushai says to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. I mean David, I mean David, but don't tell him. Long live the king, long live the king. Absalom says to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be. Notice he doesn't say Absalom, he's really thinking of David. And with him I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve? Should, I not, uh, should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Serving by doing what is a little bit more ambiguous, isn't it? Anyway, that's loyal Hushai, and we'll meet him again next week. But really the focus here is on Ahithophel and what he advises Absalom. 
So you might remember that David left behind ten concubines in the palace to look after it, and Ahithophel suggests that Absalom makes it very clear to all of Israel that he has no intention of making peace with David and that he's very dead set against him by a very public display of sexual immorality with the ten concubines. There's a sort of irony in Ahithophel's advice, though, because verse 23 tells you that Ahithophel's advice is taken as the word of God by David and by Absalom. But Nathan the prophet in chapter 12 had said that what David had done in private, Absalom would do in public, or his enemy would do in public, breaking not only the commandment on adultery, but also specifically breaking the law uh, regarding your father's wives. Deliberately here, Absalom makes himself a stench to David. As Ahithophel, David's one-time trusted advisor, becomes a treacherous backstabber, making sure there's no going back for Absalom and no peaceful way out of this. Now, that's the three traitors. And the whole story is kind of hung around the account of the encounters between David and them. But I want to show you that this, there's a great truth in the middle of all of this that David is holding on to. So let me try and point that out to you. So come back to uh, verse 5 and notice this repetition of the word curse. So Shimei in verse 5, cursed continually, we're told. In verse 7, we're told again that Shimei cursed. In verse 9, Abishai is asking why this dead dog should be allowed to curse. In verses 10 to 12, David uh, using the word curse four times in his reply. In verse 13, the writer tells us again that Shimei cursed David as he went. The point seems to be that Shimei is persuaded, isn't he, that the Lord is cursing David at this point. And the writer doesn't want us to miss that. Shimei claims that directly, doesn't he, in verse 7, that God is cursing him. David acknowledges that it might indeed be the case in verses 10 and 11. And in a way of having read to this point and worked our way through 2 Samuel, we, we need to say, well, that's probably right. These event, in these events, David is being cursed by God. Not so much because he's a man of blood like Shimei thinks, but because he's a man of adultery and murder. All of these events have been the outworking of David taking another man's wife and killing her husband and trying to cover up. God is following through on all that he said would happen, right up to the graphic horrors of Absalom on the roof of the palace with ten of his father's concubines. Nathan said that would happen. Now, none of this sounds very promising, does it, for a great truth to hold on to when the bombs are raining down. But look at verse 12 and see what in the midst of all this David is reminding himself of. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Now, I spent quite a bit of time trying to wrestle with this verse this week. What does David actually mean? You see, in the, in the Hebrew, the focus is not so much on the wrong being done to David by Shimei. The, the footnote suggests an alternative, more general word of affliction, which is from the 4th century Latin uh, version. But I think really we're to understand the sort of plain reading of this in fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy in chapter 12. It's clearly the author's intention. The driver of the passage is not so much uh, Shimei or Zibber or Ahithophel even, it's the the curses are not theirs, but God's from chapter 12. The focus is on David's wrongdoing. Shimei gets mentioned at the end of the verse. In other words, a, a more sort of plain reading of verse 12 would go something like this. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done by me 
and that the Lord will repay me with good for Shimei's cursing. Now, that might not make immediate sense, but I think it captures more closely what the verse is saying and brings out more clearly this truth that David is holding on to in the midst of all this, which is this, that despite everything in his life falling apart, despite the fact that he is opposed by three treacherous men who are twisting Absalom's knife in his back, even as that comes as a result of his sinfulness, still David, in the midst of that, is holding on to this idea that God, his God, is able to turn curses, even deserved curses, into good. Literally, into kindness is the word. In other words, this is the the bedrock of David's mind. Here, This is the truth that he's going to in the crisis. It's not just a wishful thought, oh, well, maybe everything will be okay, or not even a general idea that God is sovereign. Rather, in the midst of all that's happening, as he's losing his kingdom, as he's on the run, as these guys are twisting the knife into him, even though he knows he deserves all of that for his wickedness, still he is confident that God can bring kindness out of curses. He's saying, in effect, you know, let Shimei's stones and insults rain down. Let them hit me. Because I know that though I deserve all of that and much more, still I know that God loves me and will be kind to me. Now, if that's right, and that's what David's talking about here, which I think it is, then essentially this is really the truth of justification by faith, isn't it? The truth that God alone has the power to declare guilty sinners like us as innocent. The truth that God can declare those who are guilty, those like David, forgiving adulterers and murderers even. And notice David says, it may be that the Lord will do this. But of course we read this after the coming of Christ, don't we? And we say, God is like this. It will be. We have seen the Lord do this. As on the cross, the Lord Jesus justifies us. How? Well, by taking our curse and giving us his blessing, his kindness. As on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ takes the shame, the guilt, the penalty, so that he might declare that it is just as if we'd never sinned, as if we'd been perfect. In 1997, a friend of mine uh, went to what at the time was a closed country to do student ministry, to try and share the gospel with university students. It was a particularly dangerous time to go. Uh, A number of people in the city that she was going to had already uh, paid with their lives the cost of telling people about Jesus. There was both a massive need in that place, but also a huge cost to be paid uh, for doing it. A conference shortly after she'd left, one of the senior leaders of uh, UCCF recounted the last conversation that he'd had with her before she went. He'd asked her, he said, in in a kind of tear-soaked conversation, he said to her, looking her in the eye, what's the worst that could happen? She thought for a bit. She replied, well, I could lose my life. The leader said, well, you know, that would be truly awful. It would be a terrible loss for us all and for your family. But just think again, is that the worst thing that could happen? She thought again for a bit longer and she said, well, no, I guess it's not. I suppose I could be attacked, tortured. 
well, yes, he said, that would be awful too, and I'm probably worse than death, but is that really the worst thing that could happen? The leader's point, which I don't know how long that conversation went on for, which he got to in the end, was, listen, the worst thing in all the world is what? It's to be abandoned by God, lost by him, and facing an eternity without him and the judgment of hell. And this is it, isn't it? That cannot happen to the Christian. Why? Well, not because they don't deserve it to happen, but because 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 12, justification by faith, God has taken the penalty that we deserve in Christ on the cross and showed us kindness. You see, this is it. This is what David is holding on to in these moments. This is what you say on the phone to the family in Kiev sheltering in the cellar. This is what you hold on to as you go into a closed gospel country. The worst thing cannot happen because it happened to Christ. That's what you hold on to. I don't know whether you can see what David's doing here. And effectively, he's telling himself that his immediate circumstances are not the biggest story to hear. The bigger story is the one being told by God in the gospel. And it's the story of his deserved curses being taken away and replaced by undeserved kindness in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that all that these stones of Shimei might do, all they can do is hurt me. All that Russian bombs can do is kill me. But the resurrected Jesus can save me for all eternity. The Lord Jesus has taken the worst so that I might be given the best. Glory life eternal with him. Now, before we finish, we need to do one more thing, don't we? You see, we've been thinking about the application to David or maybe to Christians in Kiev or those heading out to dangerous places with the gospel, but what about for you and me this morning? What about for you and me? You see, we might not be uh, sheltering in a cellar from bombs. We might not be running from Jerusalem watching our lives unravel because of our adultery. But the truth is, whoever you are this morning, however old you are, whatever your situation, if your hope in life is everything will be okay, or even a, a, a sort of bland, well, God is sovereign, then there will come a point in your life when you will come unstuck. Because at some point you will hear news that you didn't want to hear, news that you can't escape, a diagnosis that you can't avoid, a grief that you can't shake, an enemy that you can't defeat, an accusation you can't judge, uh, dodge. And then the question is, what in those points are you going to grasp a hold of? Where are you going to look? And David says, look to the God who can turn curses into blessings. The God who in Christ has taken the worst so that we can receive the best. Listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, let me try and say this as clearly and as gently as I can. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, what you must see is that there is no hope in the world. There is nothing to say outside of Christ but empty platitudes that you know deep in your heart of hearts are an utter load of rubbish. There's nothing to say, nothing to say, no hope in the face of surgery when there's bad news. There's no hope in despair when the exams are failed and the future ruined. Because all of those just serve as little reminders that you live in a cursed and broken world and the worst is still to come. You might be able to dodge a few of Shimei's stones, but they'll get you eventually. And your only hope in life and death is a God who can take away the curse of sin, pay it down in his death on the cross, liberate us for life with him, 
where the worst can never happen because it already has. So let me encourage you this morning, if you haven't done already, to turn to Christ. You can pray verse 12, can't you? You can pray something like, Lord, will you look on the wrong done by me? And will you repay me with good because Christ died in my place? And if you were a Christian this morning, well then remember this. Remind yourself that like David, your joy, your security, your firmness in the face of difficulty, your identity, your sense of purpose, your hope for the future, all of those come not so much from your immediate circumstances, which may well be rotten. You may well have made them rotten. Still, there's a bigger story of what Christ's cross has achieved for us. And we need to remember that and keep telling ourselves that. Reminding ourselves in the midst of everything that's going on, you know, others may insult me. Jesus justifies me. Others may condemn me. and Perhaps I even deserve it. But Christ justifies me. My life may be in peril. My future may be in the hands of people I can't trust. Still, Jesus justifies me. Maybe you feel betrayed, you've fallen sick, you're lonely, you're broke, you're failing your exams, you get laughed at at school. Still, Christ justifies. And that means the worst cannot happen because it happened to Christ in your place. And you can trust him, come what may. Well, let me pray as I close. Let's just take a moment just to think and ponder maybe to reflect in your own heart on some of the things that we've been thinking about. Loving Heavenly Father, we want to pray, please, Would you help us, like David, to grasp hold of this great truth that in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you justify, declare not guilty, stand as perfect, people like us who deserve curses for our wickedness. And we want to pray that that truth would be so real to us that, like David, we are able to stand up and face whatever is thrown at us. That your love for us in the Lord Jesus would be more real to us than anything else that's going on around us. We pray that for ourselves this morning, whatever it might be that we're facing. We pray that for our brothers and sisters in Kiev and Ukraine and all that they're facing. We pray that it might be a delight to our hearts that the Lord Jesus loves us and has taken the curse that we deserve and given us kindness. So we pray in his name with great thankfulness. Amen. Amen.